Hello and welcome to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh. Today, in place of a traditional podcast, I bring you another conversation that I had with Trevor Loy. As you may recall, a number of weeks ago, Trevor came on and we talked all about the different stimulus packages that the U.S. government has launched in response to the coronavirus. Since then, a lot has happened. And I brought Trevor back in order to update you on all the different things that you need to know about as an entrepreneur in terms of what you can and cannot take advantage of. This was done as part of a webinar series with the Women's Startup Lab. So you hear an introduction from Ari Horier, the founder and CEO of the Women's Startup Lab at the beginning. It is a wonderful organization, and I hope that you will be interested in supporting it as well. And then after that, you'll hear the conversation between myself and Trevor Loy. So tune in, enjoy, and I'll speak to you soon. Hello. This is Women's Startup Lab today, webinar series for startup. My name is Ari Horier, founder and CEO of Women's Startup Lab. Today we have a special guest and uh, we will specifically talk about very important part of our life, which is money. Financing is a big issue for all of us facing this crisis, uh, not only dealing with this COVID-19 uh, physical effect on us and emotionally staying home many things are happening but at the end of the day we come back to one thing which is money and so today we're very uh, excited about having a two speaker and um, we wanted to uh, have a great introduction by Alice as part of our team before we go on we want to just quickly introduce you uh, about our exciting event, a global event that's happening, it's called WISE24. It will be held on June 18 and 19 in Asia. It's 24 hours rally of women entrepreneurs around the world rising and pitching their amazing startup to the world and all the investors uh, that are eager to find a great female entrepreneur. We will also have a global keynote speakers gathering and a startup expert uh, will be joining to provide amazing workshop that hopefully move you to where you are to the next place where uh, you might be struggling with a, a lot of the changes and challenges, but uh, we made it in a way that uh, brings the tactical answer, tactical action that you can um, execute uh, to move your company forward. Um, this event is held by, hosted by us, Women's Startup Lab. It's a Silicon Valley-based accelerator. So the content will be solid, amazing uh, expert that will be speaking. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll see all of you there. And uh, today, just uh, let's uh, get to the point of learning about money. Um, Alice, could you please introduce our amazing speaker? My pleasure. So this is Alice from Women's Startup Lab. And we welcome today a familiar face at Women's Startup Lab, Chris Yeh. Uh, he's an advisor with us. And he's also a general partner for our WS Lab Ventures. He has spent most of his career working with high tech startups. And so that expertise comes through very nicely in his role as advisor with us. He's also the author of Blitzscaling, which was written with Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. So Chris, we welcome you. And then Chris has invited today for our conversation in particular about the CARES Act, Trevor Loy. And Trevor is managing partner and founder of Flywheel Ventures, a seed and early stage venture capital investment firm. He is also a lecturer on entrepreneurship and venture capital at Stanford Technology 
Ventures program. Um, so his expertise in entrepreneurial ecosystems, as well as uh, the educational programs that go beyond or think beyond Silicon Valley, are all going to come in handy for today's conversation about what can entrepreneurs do and how what's still available through the CARES Act. And so with that, Chris, I will ask you to, to lead the conversation, please. Thank you so much, Alice. And Trevor, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I know people are going to tremendously benefit from your expertise. So the first thing I'd like to do is just make sure they understand a little bit about you and Flywheel Ventures, because unusually, Flywheel Ventures is not located here in Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road, but actually located in New Mexico. So can you tell me about what Flywheel Ventures does and what brings you to other parts of the country? Because many of entrepreneurs at Women's Startup Lab come to us from all around the world. I think it's inspiring to hear about ways to succeed outside of places like Silicon Valley. Great. Well, th thanks, Chris, and thank you, Alice, <clears throat> uh, for that wonderful intro. It's a great honor to be here. Uh, yeah, so I moved uh, at least half-time to Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, almost exactly 20 years ago now, after being in the Valley during the dot-com uh, boom and uh, helping to build the Stanford Technology Ventures Program in the late 90s, uh, uh, which I'm still part of, as Alice mentioned. So, but my uh, philosophy and my sort of interest has always been a combination of uh, professionally trying to help entrepreneurs who are outside of Silicon Valley and personally wanting to spend, frankly, more time in the Rocky Mountain West. Uh, and so the combination of those two things is what brought me to Santa Fe in particular. But to be clear, uh, you know, we've focused at Flywheel for the last 20 years on investing uh, originally all over the Rocky Mountain West, and then over the last decade, really all over the world, places from Santiago, Chile, to Dubai, to Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, and, and various parts of Southeast Asia as well. So uh, I, I just really believe that talent is equally distributed. Opportunity historically has not been. And what's really exciting in the last couple of months is it seems like Silicon Valley has gotten the message, and suddenly you're, you're seeing more and more Silicon Valley folks talk about uh, remote work and, and the pandemic as a wake-up opportunity to the ability to work from anywhere and to build companies from anywhere. So I think that going forward, that's going to be hopefully a permanent change that benefits everyone. One of the other things, Trevor, is that you've actually done a lot of work with the NVCA, the National Venture Capital Association. And that's one of the reasons why you're this incredible expert on the CARES Act and various other acts that have happened since this pandemic began. I remember we'd known each other for a long time, but I was so impressed by the amount of content that you're putting out around these different provisions when it was a time when everyone was very confused. Frankly, I think the lawmakers themselves were confused and <laughs> you really helped cut through some of the confusion and bring clarity to things. So one of the things that I'd love to do is I'd love to have you walk us through some of the different things that are out there because I feel like the public perception is the government has something called the Paycheck Protection Program. That's the thing that I can use. Unfortunately, it's out of money or it went to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse or what have you, and so I'm kind of out of luck. And it feels like it's like that scene in the movie The Last Jedi where Luke Skywalker says, that's amazing. Everything you said in that sentence was wrong. So let's walk through what's actually out there and what the real situation is. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, NVCA, by the way, deserves a lot of the credit for 
helping to influence uh, not just the CARES Act, but, but all of the stimulus programs, which I'll, we'll talk about here in a second, uh, in a way that benefits not just venture-backed startups, but frankly, entrepreneurs everywhere. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in going forward is trying to build a more unified voice between the small business uh, lobby interests and, and NVCA and other startups. Historically, for reasons beyond today's call, startups and small businesses have seen each other politically uh, not necessarily as aligned. And large businesses and their lobbyists, which are much larger than either, have become quite skilled at exploiting that division. And we saw some of that. And so one of the reasons I was involved early on was I saw that division getting exploited again uh, and wanted to try to head off some of it because I do a lot of work with small businesses that aren't venture backed uh, through both my teaching and my work, you know, sort of around the country. Um, so why don't we just start here? Let me just do a, a, a very high level landscape of what the different pieces of legislation are and maybe what some of the acronyms are. And then we can talk in more detail about them, uh, you know, as you want to uh, uh, ask me questions about them. So uh, right now we're taping this at least on May 19th. Um, to be clear, there have been three major phases of stimulus legislation that have been passed. There was a phase one that was very early March that most people have not heard or spent much time looking at. There's not a lot in there of relevance to this audience unless you are in uh, uh, telemedicine. That was the piece of legislation that uh, waived all of the usual barriers about practicing medicine across state lines and doing it through remote uh, teleconference. And that's actually been a huge boon for this you know, small uh, category of businesses that were trying to do startups in the telemedicine space. So if you're in that space, you should pay attention to the phase one legislation. Otherwise, you're probably not much in there of interest. Um, a little bit in for first responders in there too, if you happen to have exposure to that. Phase two was uh, called the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, FFCRA. Uh, and that primarily from a startup perspective uh, had a mandatory requirement for everyone to offer paid leave to their employees for certain conditions we can talk about uh, relating to cor coronavirus response and offered tax credits uh, as a mechanism by which uh, the government essentially will pay your company to offer that paid leave. And so that's been, uh, I think, a lesser understood, but, but can be actually quite interesting and attractive uh, program for certain companies that are eligible for that. Then there was the phase three legislation, which we popularly now know, know as the CARES Act. Um, that's the one that includes really five programs that are of potential interest. Uh, there's the PPP, which you mentioned, we'll talk more about. There's another form of small business loan called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, or EIDL. Uh, and that actually has both a loan piece and a grant piece. And then there are two tax credits in CARES Act. One is called uh, the ERC, Employee Retention Credit. Uh, and the other one was a broader just uh, payroll tax deferral uh, program. Uh, so we can talk all about that. And then lastly, at least where we're sitting today, there is a slow movement in Washington toward a phase four stimulus. The Democratic Party, uh, led by Speaker Pelosi, introduced something and passed it last week in the House. They called the HEROES Act. Unfortunately, the bipartisan uh, sort of alignment that was useful for the first three phases has not held up for phase four. And so the Senate under Leader McConnell 
have so far not taken up the HEROES Act and have at least publicly indicated their disapproval of many elements of it. So the, the best intelligence I have right now is there's going to be a lot of uh, horse trading for phase four that's going to probably take many weeks. So I don't actually think we'll see phase four legislation until June or even July. Um, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong because I think it's needed. But I also understand why the different parties have started to uh, push more uh, partisan interest in this. So I think for today, we should probably focus mostly on the first three phase programs that already exist and people can access. And I'm happy to talk about what's been introduced with HEROES, but, but again, I think it's a long way from passing. So, we'll Got it. Well, I think our time is limited enough that we can focus on the things that are, are available right now. And I think it's really important to be super practical and sort of say, well, here are the different things that you as a company could do, including what is the combination of things that you could do. I know especially everything, everyone is concentrated on PPP so much. It's the thing that's always mentioned in the news. But there really are a lot of these other benefits that I think most people are failing to take advantage of. So if you were to imagine a typical uh, small business company, startup company, what are the programs that the entrepreneurs out there should be thinking of? And what are the criteria by which they should decide which of the above programs that you mentioned they should apply for? Sure. Um, so let me review again. There's five sort of basic programs, two what I'll call loan programs, the PBP and the EIDL, and then three really operate by, by payroll tax credits. Let me talk just quickly about the mechanical function of these tax credits because it can be a little wonky, um, but it actually is a very attractive way for the government to get funding uh, actually in, with a lot less brain damage than some of the loan programs. Uh, so the, the most basic thing is the payroll tax deferral program. So just recall, if you're a business and you have employees, then you should be, and hopefully have been, uh, sending in every quarter your payroll tax filings. Uh, at the federal level, that uses a form, an IRS form called 941. There are also various state filings that vary by state in the U.S. Uh, that relate to unemployment tax, uh, in, unemployment insurance and tax filings, et cetera. Uh, so I won't obviously go through all the state level stuff. But anyway, uh, everybody pays payroll tax if they have employees. And basically, that is the component where the employer takes out of uh, a, a paycheck of an employee, potentially, but also the employer matches from the employer's own, you know, balance sheet, a component that goes toward the employer, uh, the employee's long-term social security tax, right? So that's what this is for. Um, and so the first thing in CARES Act is if you don't want to pay the payroll tax for the rest of this calendar year, you can defer it. Uh, in other words, you can stop paying it altogether, and then you can uh, uh, pay 50% of the total amount that you otherwise would have paid in 2020 at the end of 2021, and the other 50% at the end of 2022. Um, That's a huge so benefit. It's a huge benefit with a couple of caveats. The first one is it's a deferral, it's not a, an exemption. So you still do have to pay the tax. And the other thing I, I do remind entrepreneurs is as long as you feel comfortable that you uh, will be able to come up with the money you know, at the end of 21 and 22, then I think it's a huge benefit. Uh, but payroll taxes are something for which directors and officers of companies are personally liable. So if for some reason you get to the end of 2021 and the company didn't do a good job of 
remembering that it was still going to have to pay this back, uh, you personally potentially could be on the hook and the IRS could come after you for it. So it's, it's a great benefit as long as you're very careful with your record keeping and your financial management so that you don't get to the end of 21 or 22 and find yourself unable to pay it at that point. Right. Um, it's the equivalent of being able to take out essentially zero interest loans for the business. But again, with the danger of there being personal liability. That's right. It, it's basically a zero, in percent, uh, zero interest loan that you're personally securing, so to speak. Um, but I think it's still, you know, that can be, a, particularly if you have you know, more than a handful of employees, that could be a non-trivial amount of, of capital that could really help your cash flow over the next 18 to 36 months. Uh, so that's the first one. Then there's these other two tax credit programs that essentially work in the same way, um, except they don't defer the payroll tax. They actually completely eliminate it. And so these two programs are ones where you don't pay the payroll tax and you never have to pay it. Uh, and in fact, even better than that, uh, if you haven't yet incurred the payroll tax, but you're eligible for the credit, you can ask the government to advance you the amount of the tax credit that you will be able to take later this year, uh, and they'll send you the money now. Uh, and so that's what's called advanceable and refundable tax credits, which is a very wonky government sort of description, but you know, it turns into basically the government will send you money now, and the only thing that you owe later is, is uh, you know, filing for the tax credits that you're using to claim the money now. Um, so we can go into, you know, one is the FFCRA paid leave component. The other is the employee retention credit. Happy to talk a little bit more about each of those work. Uh, but those are the three overall payroll tax, uh, you know, deferral or credit related programs that I think are important and have gotten skipped over a bit in the overwhelming focus of the media on PPP to a lesser extent, the EIDL loans. Now, make, let's make sure that I'm getting this correct because I'm not the same level of expert as you are. But it sounds like these three payroll tax credit programs, you don't have to apply for them and cross your fingers and sweat out whether or not you're going to be approved. You just get them as long as you file the paperwork. That's right. That's right. Um, for the payroll tax deferral, uh, and, and by the way, if you use any sort of third-party payroll processor to do your payroll, which most startups these days tend to use, you know, whether that's, you know, ADP is the classic kind of old school one or the newer ones like Gusto and Zenefits or whoever, they, they all are totally on top of all this. So just talk to your representative and they'll make all this happen, including all the forms, et cetera. But yeah, basically it's related to forms you already are filling out anyway when you do these payroll tax filings. So you just fill them out in a slightly different way and, and voila, you're approved. And there's no cap on how many people can do it, et cetera. It's, Whoever's eligible is eligible and can claim these benefits. Awesome. Well, that definitely sounds like these are things that people should be looking into, especially because it sounds like with uh, FFCRA and uh, the other one, which is the Employee ERC. Retention Credit, ERC, it doesn't sound like those carry the same risk of personal liability as the payroll tax deferral either. They're just free money. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as long as you legitimately are eligible for them, of course, you know, they, they do involve payroll taxes with the IRS. And so if you claim them, but you weren't eligible, the IRS has a way of figuring that out eventually and coming back. But, but they, don't, they generally do apply very, very broadly. Um, the ERC has a little bit higher requirement to demonstrate uh, that your revenue has been impacted. 
Uh, and the other thing I would mention is the ERC, which is one of the reasons it's gotten overshadowed by PPP. The ERC is the one tax credit that you have to choose between it or the PPP. So if you, if you claim ERC, you cannot get a PPP loan. If you get a PPP loan, you cannot claim the ERC. There's actually in the HEROES Act, they've talked about eliminating that bifurcation. So you can do both. But since that hasn't passed, I don't want anyone to be confused about that. Um, FFCRA, however, FFCRA, everyone can use. And you can use both it and the loan programs. The only difference is you can't obviously double dip. So if the government pays, reimburses you for your payroll costs to offer paid leave to your employees, you can't then claim what you spent on that payroll cost against the forgiveness of the PVP loan, which we'll talk about later. But that's fairly intuitive, I think. And so other than that small detail, I, I, FFCRA is definitely something everyone can use. Uh, and the payroll tax deferral is something everyone can definitely use, again, as long as they're thoughtful and careful about remembering that this is not an obligation that's gone away forever. Now, one of the things you mentioned was very interesting, which is that you have to make a decision, at least right now, between PPP and ERC. And so what is the best way for people to think about wh what are the circumstances under which it makes more sense to go for PPP? What are the circumstances under which it makes more sense to go for ERC? And if that requires us to go through PPP first and explain that, that's fine too. Yeah, um, I think I could do it without going into a lot of details. I, I think in general, nearly every business and certainly every business who might be watching this webinar who has uh, employees who are mostly knowledge workers which is to say employees who are not sort of entry level wage or uh, uh, sort of you know, minimum wage are probably better off with the terms of PPP, assuming that <clears throat> it's worth it to you to go through the brain damage of PPP, which you know, is not actually as brain damaging as, it, as maybe some of the media have made it sound, but it definitely is more than just you know, checking a box for a, a tax credit. Um, and the reason for that is the ERC has fairly low limits on the, the maximum per employee that you can claim. That's another thing that the HEROES Act has tried to address, but, but until that passes, I don't want to talk more about that. So for now, the ERC really only uh, works better for you if you have a lot of uh, low-wage employees. But you know, if, if you have a primarily a manufacturing organization or a pick-and-place assembly kind of organization, um, there are actually, you know, I think a lot of traditional small businesses, you know, florists and, um, uh, you know, wholesale uh, you know, goods deliverers and things like that, where you actually most of your employees are kind of lower wage folks who, who maybe are out on leave right now. ERC actually can be better. So you should look at it in that case. If your employees are predominantly higher wage, you know, tech workers or, or, or uh, you know, knowledge workers, PVP is probably the better choice. Now, even PPP has some limitations on payroll, correct? I mean, it's not like, oh, well, you know, every Wall Street firm is going to go out and get PPP. That's right. Um, yeah, so PPP, without going at least into the details yet, <clears throat> in general, you're capped at a, at a pay rate of $100,000 a year to maximize the benefit per employee. Um, so if you have employees who make more than $150,000 a year, which clearly is you know, a decent amount of the payroll of at least Silicon Valley based tech employers, um, you're still eligible. It's just that whatever compensation you're paying people above 100,000 essentially won't factor in. 
and you'll have to treat those employees as though you were paying them at a hundred thousand dollars. But um, you know, that, that's still a meaningful amount and, and hopefully, you know, the majority of that employee's uh, compensation in most cases. So still worth it. Awesome. So it sounds like for these payroll tax credits, whoever they happen to work with, whether it's ADP or Gusto, definitely use Gusto if you can. That's a company where the founder is he is an old friend of mine, so I'm very pro-Gusto. Same here, uh, yeah. <laughs> but in this case, you know, you basically have resources. You can turn to your representative from ADP or Gusto and say, I want to take advantage of this. I want to take advantage of this. Can you walk me through it? Can you do it? And it's relatively simple and straightforward. Then we have That's the right. other two programs, the PPP and EIDL, which are not quite so straightforward, which are brain damaging, as you put it. Without damaging our brains on this call, walk us through <laughs> that and, and what are the pitfalls to look out for? Yeah, let's, let's actually talk about EIDL first uh, because it's a, probably a little more familiar to folks. You know, after a hurricane, uh, uh, whether it's Hurricane Sandy or Harvey or, or you know, an earthquake, et cetera, historically part of the federal government response, obviously you think of FEMA coming in, et cetera, but part of the federal government response for businesses is SBA, uh, once a, a, a disaster emergency has been sort of officially declared, SBA has this program that's been around forever called Economic Injury Disaster Loans, that they come in and they offer businesses loans to basically you know, cover various expenses for them to get through a recovery period and more importantly to fund you know, getting back on their feet. Um, in general, that program's been around. Now, the CARES Act changed it in a, in a few kind of important ways uh, that probably aren't all that important to go through in detail on the call. Uh, but, you know, essentially, that's a kind of program people are familiar with. The, the, the main difference with the EIDL uh, this time around with CARES Act are the kind of two things. One is uh, you can apply for uh, a total loan up to $2 million dollars. Uh, and the terms of these loans are very favorable. They are, again, loans. You do have to pay them back. But they're very low interest rate, like, you know, 1% or 2%, something like that. Uh, and potentially very, very long-term, 10. I actually heard one the other day that was 30 years. Um, and, and so basically, you know, they look more or less kind of like a mortgage, except there isn't any collateral. Uh, so it's just, uh, you know, federal government loan. So that's a good program. Um, the other piece that's more relevant for people who might be thinking about it for smaller amounts is you can apply for the EIDL and per the CARES Act, at the time you apply for these loans, you can say, I'd like an advance of up to $10,000. And in theory, the government is supposed to immediately send you an advance of up to $10,000 within three days. It's actually been taking many weeks for that to happen and not three days, but it has started to finally happen. Um, and if your loan application is subsequently not approved, you get to keep the advance and it just turns into a, a literally a grant. So no, no obligation at all. Um, this was supposed to be up to 10 grand per applicant. The SBA subsequently added a restriction, which was not in the law, to suggest that it's $1,000 per employee. So if you only have four employees, you, you might only be able to get an advance of $4,000 instead of 10. But either way, it's still uh, that advance becomes a grant uh, if your loan's not approved. So that can be quite attractive. And even if you do get the loan, then the loan terms are also quite attractive. Um, historically, people would use EIDL for any 
sort of, you know, nature of their business, whether it's payroll or inventory or to rebuild a warehouse or, you know, pay for fuel for their trucks to deliver things or, or whatever. Um, given the creation of the new PPP program, which is explicitly around payroll, what most people are doing is applying for the EIDL loans for things other than payroll. There's nothing that says you can't include payroll in it, but if you also want to apply for PPP, you have to keep them separate. You can't apply for both loans for the same cost. And so most people are using the EIDL to cover other things than payroll and using uh, the PVP loan application to cover payroll related issues. Now, two important questions. And again, I'm very ignorant here. The first is what determines the size of the EIDL loan that I could take out? Can I go to them and say, you know what? I'd like to borrow $100 million at 0% interest for 30 years. It sounds like they're not going to allow that. Yeah, correct. So again, because EADL is rooted in a program that, that already existed for a long time, um, it does have more traditional, it looks and feels like a loan approval process. Uh, to be clear, the EADL is administered entirely by SBA itself. It does not run through banks. So you go to SBA, you fill out the application on their website. It does require you to demonstrate that you have been harmed. And there's a variety of categories in which they suggest, you know, are legitimate reasons. But you can't just go and, and, and say sort of, I think I want this money. Um, and, and then they actually will approve it. They have loan, you know, servicers who are reviewing these applications. It's one of the reasons the EIDL program is moving so much more slowly. There actually is a review process where they, they go through it and they decide, to approve you for X, but not Y, and Y, but not Z, et cetera. So there, it really is more like a traditional small business loan. Uh, it's just that uh, it, you know, it's intended for this particular moment in time. Uh, the amount of money was dramatically expanded. Some of the restrictions that have historically been in place for that program were, were, were eased. But more or less for people who are watching this, if you go through that process, it does. It is going to feel more or less like you're applying for a traditional loan, um, and you do have to demonstrate that you need it because you've been harmed in some way. So let's say I'm a restaurant owner. Restaurant owners have definitely been harmed, and I want to take an EIDL loan so I can pay the rent on my restaurant and, and whatnot. So how do I figure out how much I can take out? Because obviously, again, the terms are very favorable. I'd probably want to take out as much as possible. What are the criteria that they're looking at to say, okay, we're going to loan you three months rent or we're going to loan you four months rent? You know, I, 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 on that particular example, I can't say that I know exactly the, the precise answer. Um, again, because I've been more focused like most people on the PVP. Uh, but what I do know is you'd need to first demonstrate that you're, you know, that you've been harmed in a way that is making it hard for you to pay your rent. Presumably if you have some kind of government stay at home order, it affects your restaurant, which is probably most people running mm -hmm. restaurants mm -hmm. in the country. You know, that's probably sufficient and legitimate, but you probably need to demonstrate that your actual revenue is down. So there are a small number of restaurants that have actually done very well with takeout and delivery. And so in theory, if you happen to be one of those small number, like you're a pizza shop, who's actually your business has gone up, then just know that you're not going to be eligible because they're going to, you're going to have to prove to them that you actually saw a drop in sales. And that's only fair. I mean, we're instituting these programs to help people who've been harmed. Uh, by the way, I'm definitely aware of the pizza industry success because one of my portfolio companies makes an AI product to take pizza orders over the telephone to oh, substitute wow. for the human operator. 
and their revenues have been gangbusters during this time. So it's been a great yeah. thing for them. Although again, for most people, it's been bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think the, the main thing with EIDL is you, you are going to have to spend some time on it. If you have a lawyer or an accountant tax advisor to help you, that's probably important. Um, uh, if, if not, then, you know, certainly just know that you're going to have to spend some time justifying the amount of your damage. And then the amount that you're going to request has to be related in some reasonable way to the amount that you've been damaged. Got that, it. That's, that's the principle behind it. And then finally, in looking at this versus the payroll tax credits, are these EIDL loans ones that pierce the corporate veil, make the founder or executives or board personally liable? So up to certain limits, no. Um, historically, and, and the CARES Act changed those limits. And I don't recall off the top of my head exactly what, what they are. I, I want to say something like if it's less than $200,000, then you do not have to personally guarantee that. Uh, but again, if you request, I think you can request up to $2 million. And so if you're above 200,000, but less than 2 million, I think you do have to sign a personal guarantee in a form that looks similar to traditional SBA small business loans. So you should be aware of that. Uh, and again, I, I may or may not have those limits exactly right. Uh, and they shifted them around a little bit from the historical EIDL program. So it's a little bit more favorable uh, right now, but, but, but they didn't eliminate it entirely. Well, first of all, the amount of knowledge that you have at your command without having to look at notes is already amazing. So we're not going to worry about one or two numbers. And the second thing is, if you're going to borrow $2 million, I certainly hope that you're talking to your lawyer and your accountant and not just saying, I heard this on a podcast. And so I'm fin yeah. finishing this out. Yeah, probably a good point to insert the disclaimer, Chris, that neither you nor I are lawyers and nothing we are talking about should be considered as legal advice. Although I'm sure we could buy a law degree off the back of USA Today. I, see, I hear that you can purchase them for like $99. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we haven't done that. Uh, I'll do, the only certification I have is I think I was ordained by the Universal Life Church to officiate a wedding at one point in time. I don't think that counts. Yeah, I don't think you can get a loan to pay for that wedding either. Yes. So that brings us to PPP, the thing that has consumed all the media oxygen. And there are a lot of misconceptions. What are the misconceptions and what should people actually be thinking about here? Okay, so um, just structurally, first of all, PPP is an entirely new program, more or less created within this category of SBA loans that historically have been called 7A loans. Uh, so if you happen to be familiar with those, you have maybe have a slight advantage, but it may also be a disadvantage because so much of it is different. So. Best to think of PPP as an entirely new loan category that happens to be administered by SBA. However, in this case, just like traditional SBA 7A loans, um, the, the loans themselves are administered by a network of private lenders. So these are banks, credit unions, um, and also some alternative lenders like uh, CID, F, CDFIs and MDIs uh, and uh, you know, some other non-depository institutions, Square, PayPal, for example, have been doing the program. So it's a kind of mishmash of people who are involved in moving money around combined with traditional lenders and credit unions, um, both big and small. So that's the first kind of overall thing is for PPP, you're dealing with a lender. That lender is going to deal with SBA on the back end. And that's been where some of the noise and the media hype has been, uh, particularly uh, 
you know, around some of the issues around the allocation of who's getting the money, et cetera. But that's to first order, not something that anyone paying attention to the webinar really needs to worry about. Just know that you're going to interface directly with your bank or credit union or, or a new one if you can find one that might be uh, offering better customer service but, but isn't one you've historically worked with. We can come back to that. The second thing I'd say is um, the intent of PVP, hence the name, was to allow businesses to keep people on the payroll through what was originally anticipated to be a two-month period, more or less, uh, from when the, the, you know, the CARES Act was passed, which was at the end of March. So we're, we're actually running close to the end of the two months. And obviously, it's clear that the economic impact of the pandemic on a lot of small businesses is going to last a lot longer than two months. One of the things about the HEROES Act uh, that's been proposed is to extend the two-month period for various additional lengths of time. But that hasn't been done yet so far. Um, there was a first round of funding in the initial CARES Act that was $350 billion, more or less. That money went very, very quickly, like literally within 48, 72 hours. And in part, the reason for that was there were a lot of businesses that were eligible le legally and legitimately the way the law was written, but probably uh, in the popular mind and media imagination were not imagined to be the kinds of companies for which the loans were intended. Ruth's Chris, as you mentioned earlier, one example, the LA Lakers being another, uh, you know, Shake Shack and some other large chains. And, and happy to talk more about the details of kind of how that came to be. There was subsequently um, the ability put in place for the ability for these loans to be repaid. And a substantial number of those loans have been actually repaid, combined with a second round of funding that was passed about a month later, so in late April, which was another 310 billion for this program, um, such that they, they both replenished the funds and with some loans from the first round getting repaid is actually still about, a, at least as the numbers I saw uh, last day or two, there's about $100 billion still left uh, in this program. And so despite everything else, I think the most important thing people should know is you can still go apply for a PPP. And at least as the date we're recording this, there's still a meaningful amount of money. And, and the rate at which it's being drawn down is surprisingly slow relative to the first round. I mean, we're now two or three weeks into the second round and there's still a lot of money left. Um, so I'll pause there and we can talk more about some of the details, but the headline here should be, despite everything else, PPP money's still there. And if you legitimately qualify, you absolutely should look at it in my view. Now, this is an interesting thing and it is a little mysterious because I remember the mania for that first round of PPP and now all of a sudden people are not applying. What exactly is going on? What is scaring people off? So there, because of the media, you know, and, and I think in, in many cases, probably well-deserved uh, outrage around some of the apparently large companies, including, for example, a number of several hundred publicly traded companies accessed PPP in the first round, um, many of whom have given the money back, many of whom have not, um, and Interestingly, I, I think part of where the wires got crossed is the intention here was any business that has less than 500 employees more or less was intended to be eligible and they purposely widened the eligibility in the CARES Act beyond, far beyond traditional small business loan programs explicitly because they wanted to support as many employers as they could 
and so, for example, it's not even just businesses. To be clear, PPP uh, made eligible for small business loans for the first time uh, 501c3 nonprofits, uh, veterans organizations, which are 501c19s, I believe. Um, uh, there's another category I'm blanking on now that they added. I'm sure I'll think of it in a minute. But basically, th they went wide and far to figure out what are all these different kinds of organizations that don't even have to be incorporated as businesses, but nonetheless have payroll? And how can we make sure they can get money to support their payroll? The ultimate policymaker goal was we want to keep people on the payroll of their employers because that's far more efficient, even if the government's paying for it, subsidizing it, than having people you know, be terminated, file for unemployment, then have to go through all the state programs to get unemployment insurance, not to mention the challenge of getting those people back into the workforce when things start to recover. Um, so that was the original intent. Unfortunately, the media sort of hype around some of these businesses that probably shouldn't have applied, even if they were legally eligible, created a backlash. That caused both SBA and Treasury to put in place a bunch of new tests for eligibility that were not in the original legislation or in the first round of program eligibility. And then they, even though they claimed that it kind of sort of wasn't supposed to be retroactive, the, the way it was written effectively did apply these eligibility tests retroactively, or at least caused people's lawyers to feel like there was sufficient lack of clarity about that, that they should assume it will be applied retroactively. And that's led to another round of people deciding, oh, based on the new eligibility criteria, we now should go and we should probably give this loan back because we don't want the downstream liability of the lack of certainty about whether we were eligible in the first place, in part because at the end of the day, these are federal government programs and lying to the federal government, even if that's determined six years from now, according to some inspector, you know, the, the, the penalties for that are actually quite severe, even if it was a kind of unintentional, you know, error of omission, for example. And this is an unfortunate example of how uncertainty does impose this additional cost, because looking at the program, I actually had this discussion with folks online at various places. I said, you know, the fact that publicly traded companies are taking advantage of the program is not a bad thing, but a good thing, provided everyone else who wants money can still get it. Because at That's the right. end of the day, the benefit to society is that we keep people on payroll. We avoid the dislocation of unemployment. These are all good things, whether that is being done by a mom and pop grocery store or by Shake Shack. But it is simply the fact that there, it, because it is such a difficult process of applying, it just seemed unfair that the wealthiest, most well-resourced companies were the ones who were able to jam their applications in quickly, and that the banks, due to the incentive structures in place, tended to prioritize the larger loan requests first. These are all very rational behaviors, but they just stuck in people's craw. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, it's the most outrageous examples that attract, you know, understandably the attention of media coverage, et cetera. And I saw a statistic the other day that um, less than 0.08% of the loans are more than 2 million. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, those are the ones that have got all the media attention. So I, I also think you're 100% right. If they had funded enough in the program in the first place that, you know, because now there's been about $760 billion funded toward the program, and there's still about $100 billion left, at least as of today. You know, one wonders if they'd have funded $800 billion in the first place, such that there wasn't the perception that 
you know, large companies getting loans meant small companies couldn't get the loans, whether this all would have been avoided and we wouldn't have had the need for all this additional eligibility test that created all this additional legal uncertainty that scared people and caused a lot of people who legitimately are eligible and were intended to take the money, nonetheless giving the money back and choosing to do layoffs because ironically, they perceived doing layoffs as having less legal liability now than taking the money, which is a really sad and unfortunate kind of uh, result of all the confusion. Yeah, and again, I think that let us be clear, you know, there, we can always criticize the legislators for putting things together in a certain way. This was being done very quickly in a very uncertain environment. The fact that it got done at all is remarkable given the current partisan environment. And we're not saying, oh, man, those idiots, they, they screwed it up. But I do find it ironic. They essentially engineered in the original form of the legislation a run on the bank. And then we're surprised when it happened. That's right. That, yeah, they, they also came out publicly and said, to your point, you know, this money will be first come, first served, which I, I just think that was sort of the, if you trace back all of the public uh, messaging mistakes, that was the first one. And that caused the panic environment to develop, which caused the so-called run on the bank, combined with they're probably not having been funded enough in the program in the first round, created a situation you know, that frankly didn't have to exist. But, but you're right. I mean, the whole program, you know, I was watching and, and involved in uh, when, the, when the CARES Act was being written. I mean, it was written in like, you know, 48 hours. I mean, it's just like, you know, 800 page legislation being written at three in the morning by 21 year old interns. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's actually amazing in some ways that it works at all. And so I do try to kind of keep that in mind too. So we're running, to, we're running out of time, but I, what I do want to do is to bring it back to the very practical question, because I love these policy discussions, but I yeah. also want to be very cognizant that the entrepreneurs are wondering, what should I do? So let's imagine a classic startup company. You have an entrepreneur with a relatively small team. Let's say it's less than 10 employees. They are this sort of high-tech employee as opposed to warehouse workers or so on and so forth. Uh, if you had one of these companies in your portfolio, which of these programs would you point them to, this sort of generic example, and what should they be doing right now? Yep. So I still think PPP is a very attractive program for people for whom the uncertainty is really not much of an issue. And so to use your example, you know, uh, single-digit headcount, you know, knowledge worker employees, uh, I would add, you know, if it's clear that you, you are not, you haven't taken a, a large amount of money from, you know, a large venture capital fund. In other words, if it's clear that you don't have easy access to go ask somebody to give you other money. And frankly, even if you do, um, my advice is go ask them for money. And if they say, no, we're not going to invest more money in you, that, that, that probably is enough uh, certainty to declare that it's not like you have some other source of capital available, which was one of the important eligibility tests that was added retroactively. Um, if that's the case, I think that you should go through the process to apply for PVP based on the payroll of your employees. And then presuming that you're going to be able to continue paying those employees for the eight week period after you get the PVP loan money, you should without too much uh, trouble be able to get forgiven most or all of the loan so that it turns literally into a grant 
and even if a small piece of it doesn't get turned into it uh, to to it doesn't get forgiven and does turn into a loan, the terms of those loans are also very attractive. They're 1% interest repaid over two years um, and no personal guarantee. So, so PPP is still, for people for whom it's right down the middle, and that's frankly a lot of the people watching this webinar, I still think it's a, the best program you could imagine getting. It really does come, it's no longer free money because of the effort you have to put into the application and the forgiveness but it's it's a very high ROI. It's the highest ROI money you're going to find in this environment, for sure. And it's not dilutive. Exactly. Um, if you have the kind of business that has significant non-payroll and non-rent obligations, uh, like you know a warehouse or uh, vehicles or something like that, where you have assets, I think you should also look at the EIDL. Um, I think that because of the limit on the advance you know, of $1,000 per employee, if you have only single digits, um, it's probably not worth your effort to try to go for the EIDL just to get the advance unless you really see value in the loan itself. And then the advance is just sort of a cherry on top. Uh, I also think you can take advantage of the FFCRA paid leave reimbursement tax credits that we discussed. Uh, and, you know, there are details about who's eligible for that. But basically, it's not just people who are sick. It's people who have kids at home whose schools were, were uh, you know, forced to close, et cetera. Uh, ERC, I would only look at in the case that you decide not to do PPP. And for the type of employer you described, ERC is probably not worth that much. And then the payroll tax deferral, I think, is definitely worth doing, but only if you feel really good about your ability to keep tabs on the money you've deferred and the ability to repay that money you know, at the end of 21 and 22, as we discussed, because otherwise that's the one piece of all of these programs that you are personally on the hook for. Got it. Trevor, that was a fantastic summary. I think that's really practical knowledge that people can use right away. We're just about out of time. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I know this is so confusing, even for somebody like me who has the time to read about this stuff online, let alone somebody who's running a business, trying to hold it together with employees who are worried about having jobs. And the work that you've done over the period of this crisis has just helped so many people. So thank you so much. Thanks. Well, it's nice that we have something that we can do to help people who, who are really hurting. And, uh, you know, anybody who's watching this who is in a position to help other businesses that's been my call is if you're looking for something to do to volunteer right now, go volunteer your local restaurant or florist or hair salon, help them figure out all this stuff we've been talking about. Cause sometimes, you know, they're, they're busy trying to just run the place without employees and they don't even have the time. That's, there are a lot of people in that category who could use your help if, if you have the bandwidth. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Alice, anything else we should handle before we sign off? I think you guys uh, covered great topics and it's very, very resourceful. So we're looking forward to sharing that. Thank you both for your time, for supporting the Women's Startup Lab community and wish you a great day.